They say patience is a virtue, but I can wait as long as you do for a change. Call me insane, but that's my aim. Hi guys, Future Fiseo here and I just wanted to give you a quick message before you listen to this week's episode. We now have a website, some exciting news. So untelevised.co.uk is a new place that will be hosting all of our content. We'll still be obviously on our socials at untelevised underscore TV, but on the website you can find all of the video resources, all of the podcast episodes, all of our written blogs and a list to all of the resources that we mentioned in our episodes. So do head over there and just check everything out. And if there's ever something you hear on an episode and you'd like to learn more, there's a whole resource section dedicated to helping you explore subjects further. Okay, so enjoy this episode and listening to Past Me. <laughs> Hi everyone and uh, welcome back to... Our third episode, I believe it is, um, of the Untelevised uh, podcast for uh, 2021. My name is Mona, and um, for anyone who's recently joining us, uh, this is a podcast where we explore possibilities for social change, essentially, and we try and simplify and break down complex social and political topics in a way that hopefully resonates with people regardless of what their background is or how much experience they have of these issues. We sort of kicked off the year defining a big topic. Um, We kicked off with socialism um, as a sort of one of the main alternatives to capitalism. And then we gave a bit of a practical example of a community that lives not necessarily in explicitly socialist ways, but certainly in a sort of anti-capitalist way um, or, you know, in, in a non-capitalist way, let's say, um, a community in the Netherlands called Stadsnomaden, which means the nomad state. So we hung out with them for a while. And actually, we had, we've had we had some really positive responses to, for, from people who are like, wow, it's really interesting to see a practical example, yeah. which I think is what we always talk about, isn't it? Like, we yeah. need to get out of the abstract, basically. Exactly. It's easy to just discuss theory, but until you actually see practical examples of it, it can all feel a bit unreal and and it can feel hard to apply to your own life and to see how you might actually take some of these things and implement them. So I think people really appreciated seeing that example of people who are actually living some of the things that we speak about. Definitely. And I think off the back of that, um, because one of the things that then came up within socialism and definitely also came up as a system of governance that they needed in that, you know, that they had explored in that community in in the Netherlands as well, um, is democracy, um, which maybe sounds very, very obvious um, and almost a bit of a given. But, you know, democracy is another really big kind of topic. Um, It's one of the key features of almost sort of any political society that most of us can imagine um, at the moment. Um, But unlike socialism or capitalism, which are whole social political systems, democracy is an element of those systems. You know, you could have democracy in a socialist or capitalist state. So we felt like we really probably needed at some point to to explain democracy too, almost because it's taken a bit for granted. Yeah, um, it is really taken for granted, actually. And I'm so excited to explore it a bit further. 
I can actually remember my first election. I can remember the first election I was able to vote in. Um, it was the 2015 election with Ed Miliband, Nick Clegg and Cameron all vying for leadership. And at the time, I was actually working a bit with um, Sky because they were trying to energise young people like me to who were first-time voters to be more interested in voting. So I guess not much has changed in the sense that I'm still trying to get people energised around politics. But yeah, as part of that, I actually got to question the four main leaders. Um, and I'll try and find some photographs, if I can, um, <laughs> to put on the Instagram so you can see a slightly young Paseo. <laughs> um, grilling David Cameron um but yeah I remember how excited I felt that I was finally able to like exercise my right to vote so yeah the question and the subject of democracy is something I'm really passionate about uh, do you remember your first election Mona? I well so it's interesting so this is you know something that you you know will come to probably but so I'm a Danish citizen um which means that I can't vote um at least not in general elections in this country and so I had again maybe you know I had somewhat ignorantly thought that that just meant I couldn't vote here I knew loads about politics I grew up in a very political environment um but within the mainstream political system of this country I just kind of assumed I I couldn't vote and the election you've just referred to is the first election I remember being very aware of and actually watching the whole night's, you know, results from because I was working at the time for a think tank called Demos in London. And that was my first job in a more political environment. So it's the first election I really remember kind of like following and understanding and being more conscious of, but I couldn't vote in it. So it was maybe a couple of years later when I was living in London in like and doing my sort of like first, even sort of more official long-term job in the charity sector. And uh, again, didn't think I could vote. And it was the London mayoral elections. And my housemate comes, we we both come home late, you know, the voting booths were closing at, you know, whatever it is, 10 p.m. We get home at 9 p.m.-ish or whatever. And she's like, did did you vote? Did you vote for the mayor? And I was like, no, I, I can't vote. And she was like, nah, you can definitely vote for London mayor, even though, you know, you, you can't vote nationally. And she literally forced me out the door. She's like, no, it's 9.30pm, you can still make it. Off you go now. Not having it, go vote. And so off I went. Your black mate reminds no... me of me. Um, I had an elderly neighbour across the road and I remember in the last elections, just in um, 2019, she was like, oh, it's late, I haven't been yet. And I was like, I'm driving you there. You're definitely voting. <laughs> Everyone has to vote. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, actually, knowing who can vote, how to vote, how you make sure that you're um, eligible, all of these things. And we'll discuss that a bit more, I think, after our guests, because that that forms a main part of some of our conversations this week, I think. Yeah, definitely. But I guess we should maybe start by defining what democracy actually is. That might be a good idea. Okay, so democracy, um, a big word, um, but equally one we use so often that maybe we don't really stop to really think about what it means. Um, But in just dictionary terms, um, democracy is the belief in freedom and equality between people or a system of government that is based on this belief. Um, So that means that power is in theory held by everybody in a society every person, one vote, rather than just being held by a sort of small group of people or a dictatorship or, you know, through oppression and so on. Um, We can have a sort of direct democracy where every single person who has that say and that vote is always 
voting on every single thing, um, every single decision in a in a society, for example, or a representative democracy like we have in the UK. So the difference there would be that in a direct democracy, um, every single decision, so every time there is a vote on a housing policy or a change on climate, et cetera, et cetera, we would all always vote on everything. Or in a representative democracy like we have, we have certain elections where we vote for somebody like our local MP who we trust in theory, to represent us. And then once we voted for them, they then go and vote on our behalf on housing, climate change, etc., etc. There are many other types of democracy, and we actually learned in the research for this episode that there are over 2,000 different like adaptions, like different adjectives that have been added to democracy over time to, to describe it. <laughs> I still can't get over how many there are, two, over 2,000. O- over 2,000, yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely 2,234, apparently. But, <laughs> so we are definitely not going to define all of those, but a couple which sort of stood out to us or were kind of that I hadn't heard of, certainly, that we wanted to describe um, are one is liquid democracy, which, as the word might suggest, means that it's kind of fluid or it moves. So that means that while we all have a vote, we can actually decide to give over our vote to somebody else, depending on what it is that we're voting on. So, for Mm -hmm. example, if there was a vote on something climate related, and I didn't feel that I knew enough about climate, but I knew that Fazio was an expert on climate, I could hand my vote to Fazio and ask her to vote oh, okay. on my behalf. <laughs> okay, I'd be happy to, Mona. <laughs> Would you be happy to? Yeah. And then I could take it back. <laughs> okay, maybe not so happy to give, give it back once I've got it. <laughs> um, so then assuming Fazio gives my vote back to me, I can Which then use happen. it myself again on a different issue, or I could give it to somebody else if she didn't give it back to me um, (laughs) that sort of might lead me on to something called illiberal democracy um, which also might sound like a juxtaposition but an illiberal democracy is where although elections do take place um, in a country um, so it still is like representative democracy you still vote for people that represent you once you've done that, citizens are then cut off from knowledge or the acti- about the activities that are being taken place on their behalf. So it's not consistently transparent, open. You just do your one vote and then maybe those people do whatever the hell they want for four years, five years, and you don't really get a say again. So that's mm. illiberal um, democracy. It's obviously worth defining here that democracy can be applied to anything from as big as a whole society Um, or to just the way that a company makes decisions or even to the way that three, four people in a housing, in a house share might make decisions. So it is a decision making system. Yeah, and most democracies are said to rest on pillars and these pillars differ slightly per country. But in the UK, we have four main pillars and that's the legislative, the executive, the judiciary and the press. Our guest goes into a lot of really good detail about specifically um, the different systems we have in the UK. But put really simply, the legislative makes the laws, the executive enforces the laws and the judiciary keeps a check on the laws that are made and ensures that the laws 
do not curtail the fundamental rights of the citizens of the country. Um, so, for example, if a law is made and it just goes against a human right, for example, um, the judiciary is what's there to make sure that that can't happen. And then the last one, the press or the media, um, is meant to be the pillar that ensures that people are aware of what's happening, but also the pillar, the pillar that ensures transparency and accountability of the other three. So it's meant to really be the one that keeps all of the different elements of the democracy, the lawmakers, the enforcers in check. It's sort of, I guess, the people's voice. Another thing that we mentioned that might be useful to quickly outline is the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill. Um, and we're linked to a video that explains this a bit more because it's something a bit complex to explain really briefly here. But essentially, very recently, there's been conversation about a new bill that is being discussed and passed through Parliament that gives increased powers to police officers in the UK um, in regards to protests. So this means that if this bill is passed, they will be able to impose a start and finish time on protests, set noise limits, um, apply different rules to one-person protests. So basically it extends the powers that police officers have um, when people are protesting. People think that this has come out of the fact that Extinction Rebellion protests and the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020 um, really galvanised a lot of people and really forced society to pause quite a lot. And the police felt that they took a lot of um, resource in trying to manage and, I guess, police these events. Um, so now they're trying to increase their powers so that they can essentially just stop them from happening or stop them from happening to such an extent. Um, the interesting thing about this is that the right to protest and express yourself is enshrined in human rights law. Um, so actually reducing these rights is at conflict with this. So um, it's being seen, as one of our guests talks about, it's being seen as quite an attack on civil liberties and quite an attack on our right to enact democracy. Um, because although we might be as Mona said, living in a representative democracy where we elect people every five years or four years, um, protest is seen as one of the main ways that people can continue to express themselves and express how they feel about what's happening. So to say, oh, we're going to restrict it, you can do it between two and three, and you can only have one um, Vuvuzela or whatever, it kind of defeats the whole purpose of this collective organising. And we speak a lot about uprising and protest and its importance um, across a lot of our episodes, actually, but specifically in our our socialism one and in our uprising episode so if you'd like to learn more about protests then please check those out and um, we'll put some resources up on the website uh, for you to explore this uh, bill more this week i'm speaking to oliver sadorchuk oliver is a social justice campaigner he works extensively to educate people on what democracy is and how they can engage in it He's critical of our current system, arguing that there are a number of faults in what we currently deem as democratic elections, and he's an advocate for democratic reform. In his work, he's played an active part in influencing decision makers across the public, private and third sectors, and he's currently coordinating the parliamentary arm of the CEE Bill Alliance, which calls for radical action to tackle the climate nature emergency. So, based on this impressive track record, I thought he'd be a great person to sit down with to unpick the basics of democracy. What it looks like, what it should look like, and why there's a gap between the two. Democracy, in a really straightforward or, or basic level, is about people power. The power of the people. I mean, that is literally what, what, what the word means. So, democracy is about people having a say, as opposed to a monarch, a king, a dictator 
judges, um, business. This is about people. Um, and it really excites me. There's, there's lots of problems with democracy, but there's also huge opportunities for grassroots organizations, individual groups, local communities to begin to seize or take power themselves and not always rely on the system that we, we normally have and we normally see, which is about giving up your say or giving up your powers to people to make decisions on your behalf. Because so often those people uh, are conflicted and so often vested interests or big money talks. So it's about making space for people at the table and making sure that power sits in the hands of the people, us, the citizens, the, the people of a country. Um, and I'm really passionate about trying to reclaim that. So I love what, what you guys are doing. Uh, and I think that's a hugely important part of the, of the puzzle is making sure that local community organizations um, understand how to make a change themselves. I completely agree that it's about people power and we're going to explore that a lot more in, in, in what we talk about today because we want to sort of dig your brains about how people might take that power back and what that might mm. look like. And, and like you say, that's what we're all about. So I love that definition. But just to cycle back a bit, if it is about people power, would you say that that exists anywhere in the world um, in the current societies that we have do you think that that sort of simple essence of people power exists anywhere that's a really good question um that that idea of democracy you know might have existed in a in a sort of pure form if you like um in ancient greece um but even then there were huge caveats on how they decided to organize um the way that they made decisions um you know the there were slaves at that time and they couldn't vote and women couldn't take part in the way that they decided to organize themselves through things like citizens assemblies. Um, no, I don't, I don't think this idea of people having a fair and equal say in how decisions are made exists anywhere because um, of the huge amount of, of influence um, that currently exists um, at the very top of the tree. So the power of big business to control the funding of political parties who often then run uh, the way a parliament runs. So in the UK, the Conservative Party, you know, it's not a political, politically biased thing to say that there are these vested interests in democracy because the donors of the Conservative Party are then given jobs in government and seats in the House of Lords, which is one of the, one of the two houses of our UK um, legislature, our parliament. Um, there's also the huge role of the media in influencing what we think, what we read, um, and informing us about the issues that we should be caring about. And instead they're distracting us with things that actually we don't really matter. Um, so no, I don't think this idea of, 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 of real equality for people to, to make their voices heard uh, exists anywhere currently. You mentioned there a lot of terms, you said parliaments, you said House of Lords, etc, etc. Can you describe for our listeners who might not, un might not be so familiar with the UK system or who might live in the UK and not quite understand how the system works, in as basic terms as you can, <laughs> can you describe to them um, what the democratic system in the UK is, how it works? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um... It is, it is a confusing mess often. So, you know, it's absolutely, um, it's difficult to, for me to, to, 
to remind myself actually how alien some of these ideas are. Um, but we know in the UK, we have something called the constitutional monarchy. That's our type of democracy. So the queen is the head of state, you know, the queen's courts, the queen's revenue and, and customs service. Uh, but really underneath that, uh, uh, you know, she's this sort of, this sort of symbolic symbol of the crown. Think about the Netflix series, The Crown. Underneath that is her government. So our government, the people that we elect. So we elect people to a UK parliament um, all across the UK nations. So we have 650 MPs. Uh, alongside that chamber of the House of Commons where MPs sit is the House of Lords, um, unelected members of parliament. Um, some of them inherited their titles. You know, there's about 90 in there who have inherited their seats in the House of Lords because their great, 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 great grandfather was a friend of the king. You know, this is, this is crazy. Uh, it doesn't mean that the House of Lords doesn't do some good work, but it is, it's, it's bizarre. Um, so underneath the UK parliament, so to speak, there are similar parliaments of directly elected members in Wales. There's something called the Senate, um, the Welsh Parliament, and there's a Scottish Parliament as well. Um, that means there's also a Welsh government and a Scottish government that have control over certain devolved powers that the UK Parliament, the UK government, has devolved to those regions. The same applies in Northern Ireland, where there is devolved government, there is a Northern Ireland Assembly and a Northern Ireland Executive. Um, across all of the UK nations, the four UK nations are lower level or, or smaller level um, governments. So we have local councillors, um, we have city councillors, county councillors, borough councillors, lots of different levels, right the way down to small town and parish councillors. Uh, and to make things even more confusing, there are systems of now directly elected mayors. So there is a mayor for the Liverpool city region where I'm from. There is a, a more well-known mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, and the London Assembly that holds him to account. So there's lots and lots and lots of layers to this, um, a bit like a huge cake. Um, but at the top, there is this, this power vested in the UK Parliament. Boris Johnson's Conservative Party are the largest party in the House of Commons, so they have the option of, of forming and running a government. So he's our Prime Minister. Um, but there are loads of opportunities to not only influence all of those different types of people I've just mentioned, those elected decision makers, um, but there's also a tremendous amount of things that people can do themselves at a community level. And that's where the interesting stuff is, in my opinion. Um, that's what's really exciting to me. I would completely agree that excites me as well. But I want to pause for a minute and talk about political education because you've just explained there quite a complex system, but also a system that affects, impacts, and is important to, for everyone to understand because it's important that everyone participates in it. Um, I'm, I might even say obsessed <laughs> with politics. Yeah. I chose to study it at A-level. Mm -hmm. I chose to study it at university. Um, and I think that obsession stems from the fact that I just want to understand how the world works so that I can understand what my contribution to it is. But the more I learned about the basics of how our country functions, the more I was shocked that this education is not mandatory. Mm. And I believe this has real implications because if people don't understand its importance, they might not 
understand like you've spoken about their power mm. and their place in in participating in it so why do you think that political education is not sort of a mandatory subject that everyone learns in this country and what's your opinion on the fact that it's not yeah, that's a huge question, uh, a really important question, um, one that I spent a while trying to, to influence the government so that they would, as you say, make sure that politics or citizenship or civics, whatever you want to call it, is, is mandatory for, for all young people's education. It's, it's one of the things that people often leave school and think, why wasn't I taught about this stuff? When, when the penny drops and someone realises... I care about politics, but no one told me it was politics in school, is a serious question. So, I mean, your, your, your question was, why don't we teach it? And I think genuinely there is a, there is a hesitancy by, by this government or an opposition by the current Conservative government that you don't want to widen the pool of people getting involved in democracy. Why would you teach people um, how to get involved in something that then makes your job difficult? Uh, you know, you could say that's a cynical way of looking at it, but I don't think that's unfair. If we thought that this was important, we'd teach people about it. If we thought that voting was important, we'd make sure that every young person, when they turned 16, was invited to register to vote at school. On that issue of voter registration, you know, I think it should be automatic anyway. We shouldn't be creating barriers to voting at all. Um, but, but bigger picture, you know, there is, there, is a, there is a bit of a balance about saying that we don't want young people to get partisan um, education. You know, you don't want people leaving school having been taught by a teacher from a certain political party. You want them to have a broader understanding about how they can take power themselves. That's the key thing. If they want to get involved, this is how they get involved. And it's not just voting. That's the key thing. It's not just taking part every four or five years. It's thinking about, you want to join a social movement. What are the ones that are out there? Understanding the importance of protest in British and, and global political history. Why are we constantly taught about the Tudors in schools in this country? Why aren't we taught about the Peasants' Revolt hundreds of years ago in this country? Why aren't we taught properly about the Civil Rights Movement? Why aren't we looking at contextual modern examples of young people taking power for themselves in the youth um, global climate strikes? Um, these are really important things. So I'm cynical about it, but it should be mandatory. And I think every political party should be saying, yes, we agree in active political education in school. Yeah, I would agree. I don't see politics necessarily even having to touch on the individual parties and their policies. I think that's important. But for me, political education would literally be showing young people that politics is every day and it's everything. It's not something separate from us. Um, it's not something that you can mm. escape. And like you say, empowering them to see their place in it and, and um, their part to play in it. Um, so you spoke about things like apathy and it's somewhat being intentional, um, not, not giving people this education. Who is it that tends to be left out? You know, generally in the most powerful democracies in the world, we want to call them democracies, but then there's a big caveat. It's the voices of women, non-white and non-Western people that are systematically excluded. You know, they're not just ignored, they are often held back. Um, and I think people do 
as you said, people care about issues. They care about how politics affects their lives. But what we don't do, for instance, with this lack of political education is help people connect the dots. So it's a little bit of a misnomer in some ways to, to, to talk about apathy because it's a useful word to capture the, a general point. But this, you know, you could describe it as a lack of feeling, a lack of interest, a lack of concern. Yes, a lack of concern for the current way politics is done. But people feel and people are interested in inequality. They care about racial justice. They might not call it that. They care about environmental justice, but they might not call it that. So there's lots of connecting the dots to do because this is a very difficult world for people who, who, who aren't thinking about it all the time. I, you know, I, I have a similar thing with, with, with the financial system and economics. A lot of that is really difficult for me to understand. But once you can begin to connect the dots to how politics affects your life, and how you can begin to change the things that you want to change through politics, that's when the real magic happens. When people start to collect together in trade unions and demand fairer, fairer pay, or people start to organize at a local level, um, as they did really amazingly most recently in America with the Georgia voter registration drive um, that elected two democratic senators that tipped um, the Senate into something that the Democrats could control. So, you know, don't tell me that politics doesn't matter when you think about not only the power of your, your vote to influence things at a national level that then can influence a global level. I mean, use the U US as another example. Um, a Democratic president with a, with a Democratic Congress, you know, the US equivalent of the Houses of Parliament, rejoining international treaties about climate change. You can't get much bigger than that in terms of the course of human history. But that comes down to very basic, simple questions about helping people understand how powerful they are to, to influence change and make social change at a local level. I think let's explore this um, a bit more now. Um, so you spoke about protesting and its importance, and we've covered that quite a bit so far on the podcast, um, the power of uprisings, why they happen, their mm -hmm. importance. And actually many of our guests have identified it as the spark of social change, the beginning point of social change, and spoken about the fact that often for any radical long-term social change to happen, it has to start with some kind of uprising. Um, and I know that's um, becoming harder. So what are some of the things, you've spoken about some things, but what would be some of the things that people in their day-to-day -day life can do to take back this power, to recognise this power, to act? I mean, you've mentioned things about protest. You know, that sort of voting with your feet, people actually using their bodies to go and vote, to go and, to go and, and, and demonstrate. That's the point. It's about making a noise and being, annoy being annoying and causing disruption to voice their dissatisfaction. And that's why that police crime sentencing in courts but is so terrifying, is that it's cracking down on protest. Protest is a hugely important safety valve in a democracy. Even Barack Obama calls it, you know, good trouble. Um, someone that has risen to the top of, of the current way of running a democracy. You know, that the civil rights movement in the US is a, is a perfect example of that. But that, that bill is terrifying because it says 
it says that the protesters will be in breach of the conditions of this bill if they ought to have known that they're doing something annoying. Of course they know what they're doing is annoying, that's the point. Um, but the additional things, to, to come back to your question, aside from protest, voting, registering to vote, is taking an interest. A really important part of living in a democracy is understanding what's going on. So taking an interest in the media, in the news, understanding why the news is written in a certain way so you get your balance and you understand that something, ah, that's written in that way because that particular billionaire runs that newspaper. Um, so educating yourself and making time to understand what's going on, even though often it's incomprehensible, is super important. Um, at a local level, I love the idea of, of getting involved in things like the May Project that brings a social change at a micro level. So can you get involved in things that are good for your own well-being, like gardening projects on the one end to getting involved in other local volunteering projects in your community. There's a huge sense of community spirit there that then can lead to other things. It can lead to, to for instance, organizing around Extinction Rebellion groups at a local level. There are loads of different groups campaigning at a ward or community or neighborhood level that you can get involved in. Um, so those are a couple of the things, but I think, I think they're the key ones. Uh, there's often, you know, if you've got an issue about something, write to your local councillor or your MP or your mayor. Follow that up. There are local elections coming up in May right across the UK. Get involved in those elections. Tell your friends about them. Try and influence the candidates that are standing for them if you want to get involved in having a stake in the outcome. A lot of this requires time and a lot of people don't have the time and that's the big kicker in a democracy because if you live in poverty, you are shut out of democracy often because you haven't got the time to use your opportunities to get involved and that's a huge issue that we have to track, tackle as well. Um, but I think those are the key things. I think, I think that's important what you've said because I think often people might not recognise um, actions like you've spoken about. So joining a community group as necessarily overtly political but like you say in those spaces in that community um mm. communal action that's where the roots of politics can grow because yeah, yeah that's where people can connect that's where people can identify issues that's where people can organize etc etc mm -hmm. so i completely agree um but you've spoken just then about elections and voting one of the things we saw in the most recent election where we had jeremy corbyn and boris johnson as the two main candidates shall we say um is that there was a lot of conversation around the amount of choice that we have as the electorate um, and the fact that Corbyn was identified as something really different because um, of his ideology. Um, and that sort of highlighted the fact that increasingly we're having candidates that have increasingly merging ideologies. They're kind of standing for the same thing, no matter what party they're sort of from. What are your thoughts on this? The fact that I guess what I'm asking is what choice does the electorate have? I think many people feel disillusioned because they feel no matter who I vote for, mm -hmm. no one's really speaking for me. I don't really have a choice. Mm -hmm. um, what, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a really tough question as well because it, it sort of drills down into one of the, the fundamental things about a democracy, which is about fairness. So I, I think one of the root causes of the problem that you, you've identified is because we don't have a fair electoral system. So we don't have a proportionate or proportionate representation system 
PR as it's called, where all votes are counted equally when we elect MPs, for instance. Um, so what we currently have is a first-past-the-post model. So um, Jeremy Corbyn needs to win one more vote than another candidate to win his constituency. But that means there's so many wasted votes, so many people are cut out of that process, um, that they're not fairly represented in Parliament. So there are millions of people who vote for, for smaller parties, like the Green Party, um, or the Liberal Democrats, another party uh, across the UK, but they get way fewer seats in the House of Commons. Um, that is one of the, the, the core reasons why, for instance, the main political parties, the, the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, have to widen their tent, big tent politics, they call it, to attract an increasingly smaller pool of people that might float between those parties. So that's why you've got uh, Conservatives winning in, in traditionally Labour seats at the last election was a huge surprise. Uh, and why when Tony Blair was Prime Minister, they were he was actively going after floating Conservative voters so that he could get his majority in the House of Commons. So it's, it's really not fair. And it forces people down this road of saying, well, if they're basically saying the same things on the issues I care about, what's the point in me voting? So it is a serious problem for, for apathy. Coupled with that, and I fell into the trap, is the fact that we speak about the individual. So I speak about Corbyn, I speak about Boris Johnson. I'm not speaking necessarily about the party and the party mm. policies. Um, why do you think yeah. we have moved sort of from party to personality politics? Um, where campaigns are increasingly about the individual person rather than the party that they're representing? And is it problematic? Yeah, I, think, I think it is. I think it's hugely problematic. This sort of presidentialization of UK politics where power is being drawn into the executive branch of government, 10 Downing Street, is really worrying. Uh, it's, I say presidential, I mean US presidential politics, uh, made even more worryingly dangerous with President Trump, former President Trump, who was a celebrity, you know, a, a really strange celebrity. Um, and that type of idea being brought into the UK system, which is not meant to be about that at all, it's meant to be about a representational democracy where MPs are the people are in charge. Um, but it's also part of a really bigger picture where, you know, we call it personality politics, part of, part of party politics. So the way political parties work, they have something called a whipping system. So we put our trust in MPs every five years. By the way, they have absolutely no obligation to turn up to parliament at all, but we put our trust in them to vote on laws in our name. Um, they're then whipped by the political parties. And if they, if they don't obey the party whip, then they are not playing by the rules and they're out. So if you, if you don't vote the way you're meant to vote because your conservative or Labour whip tells you, that's it, that's your career over. So it's a really crooked way of, of trying to think about how decisions are made. And I'm not saying party politics is, isn't useful, but there are much more interesting ideas about liquid democracy, where, where people think about giving up their votes to experts who know more about them, uh, about certain things, 
um, to deliberative democracy, where people are involved through things like citizens' assemblies, citizens' juries, uh, participatory budget-making. Now, a lot of this sounds quite dry, but it's where the real power is in politics. If a local community wants to get involved at a, at a city or a town or a council level, there's a budget there that you can use. Maybe people don't want to build any more roads. Maybe they want to build cycle lanes. Maybe they want to give money to, to transformational projects that are building community assets like youth centres, gardens, parks. Maybe we don't want to put more money into things like flyovers. You know, so that's where the real interesting stuff can happen. I like the idea of what you've spoken about in terms of localization, because I think that's a really important thing is that there's no universal approach to, mm. to dealing with um, society and society's problems. So what might be useful in one area of the country mm. might not be so useful in another. And the experts in what's useful are the people that live in those yeah. communities. Yeah. So the community having a voice on their specific area, I would agree, is really important mm. and really powerful. Mm. One of the things I think you spoke about there is accountability or mm -hmm. lack thereof, and you've spoken about it quite a lot throughout our conversation. Um, you've, spoken about, you've spoken about things like inherited power, um, mm. funded power through basically paying for power mm. for your access to politicians, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you've also spoken about the media. And traditionally, I think the media is designed to be one of the things that holds power to account. I think there's been a lot of conversation around a lack of accountability. So we vote every four or five years and in between those four or five years, what opportunities do we really have to hold um, the people that we elect to account? Mm. What would you say to people that sort of have that query? I think that's, that's the, the big issue. That's the kicker. Um, and as you, as you were speaking, I was reminded of this really powerful quotation by Tony Benn who was a Labour MP, a socialist, believed in society. Um, there's five questions to ask the powerful that he thinks. So I'll, I'll just tell you what they are. So the first question is, what power have you got? Where did you get it from? In whose interests do you exercise it? To whom are you accountable? And how can we get rid of you? And I love that. I love those five questions from, from Tony Benn because it gets to the heart of, of thinking about what we need to do to safeguard our means of holding people accountable. Because if we sleepwalk into a situation where protest is made illegal with this bill, if we allow the media to be, to be bought and, and led by these vested interests of billionaires like Rupert Murdoch, if, if the way that knowledge is shared in a democracy through these very mysterious propaganda tanks or think tanks funded by the same people who've bought the media, um, if our courts, our judicial system, a really important leg of the stool of government alongside uh, parliament and, and, and the executive, if our courts and judges are limited in their independence and their discretion, then we've got to work even harder to make our voices heard. And in those situations, are we in, even in a democracy at all? I don't think we are. So we need to protect and fight for our rights in these spaces. And that doesn't just mean protest. Uh, it means choosing, thinking about our choices. How do we spend our money? Do our jobs have a social impact? Are we conscious of where our pensions are? Are our pensions funding war and tobacco and the arms trade? 
Um, are we registering and voting? Are we connecting with those around us to form mutual aid groups during the pandemic? Um, uh, are, are we connecting with people in other countries in solidarity? And none of that is possible as communities, as consumers or professionals or advocates or artists, uh, unless we take part in democracy. So we must use the tools that we've got before, unfortunately, they're taken away. I think what's important there is you gave some really, really practical everyday examples of how people can make that change in their individual lives because I think it sounds very overwhelming when you think of how mm. systematic some mm. of this stuff is and how at every level of society it seems that things are stacked against us mm. in a way um, and it almost seems that as an individual just you spoke earlier about time and I think one of the things that this year has given us I mean aside from the atrocities and it's been very hard for many people but it has given us a sense mm. of time and I think that's why now many people are asking mm. more questions um, because often when you don't have mm. time you're just trying mm. to survive when you don't have time and access to money you're just yeah. trying to survive so you might not even look at these structures and realize how big and insidious mm. it all is but like you say there's so much um, mm. radicalism maybe even in just recognizing that individual yeah. power um, and reclaiming it um, and what we always try and end on is giving people practical tips of how they can take sort of the theory of what we've mm. spoken about into the practice of their everyday yeah. lives and how important the micro changes, the things that you do every day yeah. are in the macro change of like trying to change society and the way it functions. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned a few there, but I just want to give you another chance in case there's anything you want to say to people that like this is a low hanging fruit. This is something you can do today that will make a difference yeah. in the fight for a more democratic society. If you do one thing today, make sure that you're registered to vote. I think that's a really simple thing to do. You can register online, it takes a couple of minutes, um, but there are elections coming up and that's a seriously powerful thing to do. The probably in terms of a sort of cost, cost benefit type thing, it's probably the simplest and cheapest thing that you can do in terms of making a difference because your vote is powerful. Um, on top of that, I think on a micro level, I just think it's so important that, that you think about in your local community, how tapped in are you to what's going on? Do you read the local newspaper when it comes around? Not the one that the council pushes out about its own propaganda, but a local newspaper so that you're clued into what's going on. Are you a member of any other groups outside of your work? Not stuff that just pays you to be there, but things that give you a sense of local well-being. And again, if you haven't got the time to do that, it might just be as simple as a sports group or a faith group or, or a community mutual aid or COVID group, because you get such a sense of well-being, of, of, of being in an area, whether you're working on an allotment whether you're helping out at a homeless shelter, these things take time and commitment. But if you've got that time where well, you can make the time and really encourage you to do that. The last question I'm gonna ask you and we ask all our guests is, when will your work no longer be needed, if at all? <laughs> what, what needs to happen in society for you no yeah. longer to feel that you no longer need to do this work? I imagine lots of people will say never. And I think that's because uh, a lot of people working in, in social change, um, sustainability or well-being is that this is something that circulates and is fluid. It's constantly being vigilant about understanding where power is, 
who's holding it, how you can influence it and take it back from the hands of capital, fund managers, bankers, that this is something that you have your knowledge about, your truth about, um, because that's fundamental to democracy. Um, every new generation needs to be engaged and needs to build and improve on the generation before. And I, I love that idea, is that this isn't something that you might not see change in your lifetime, but if the changes that you make now can be enjoyed by future generations, that's, that's good enough. You've built and been part of a community, a movement of people that you might not see the changes you want to see in the next year, 10 years, but, but those who come after us might well enjoy those freedoms better. So this week I got to speak to a very, very inspiring individual, um, Anjan Sundaram, who I kind of, again, had just wanted us to get on this podcast from the moment we started recording it. Um, Anjan is a journalist, um, television presenter and author, mainly known for his books uh, Stringer and Bad News, um, the Stringer based in the Congo and Bad News based in Rwanda, um, where he particularly deals a lot with issues around the freedom of press and freedom of speech and democracy within a dictatorship. Um, Anjan um, has lived a very international life. Um, he is from Ranchi in India. He grew up in Dubai. He went to the university in the US, um, obviously, you know, spent time in the Congo and Rwanda writing his books and across other parts of Africa as well. And he currently is in Cambodia, which is where he spoke to us from and might occasionally be the reason for slight less good uh, um, connection or sound. Um, but Anjan basically really explores issues around freedom of press, um, freedom of speech and holding dictatorships and non-democratic uh, governments to account. So he just seemed like an obvious person for us to speak to, to get that slightly wider lens on the issue and move us beyond the UK. I was in Rwanda to train a group of about a dozen journalists and they were arrested, shot dead or had to flee the country one by one as they reported on topics critical of the government and then quickly found their lives in danger. And so I began to try and help them. And my book was very much my experience of my attempts to help them and also about their important work. I learned a lot about journalism, about democracy, about human rights, about free speech, about the importance of journalism and how to practice journalism from these Rwandan journalists. And uh, I think it's a perspective that, you know, is from the ground. It's uh, not necessarily from a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter or, you know, someone at the BBC uh, that I learned the most about journalism, but it was from these grassroots, a very modest and humble Rwandan journalists who put everything on the line, who put, you know, their safety, their property, their wealth. The Rwandan government went after everything and the, these journalists uh, were courageous enough to put everything on the line uh, because they believed in what journalism could and should do in a democracy. Well, I really want a lot of what you said I'm going to come back to, but I guess for the purposes of this episode, it's 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 about democracy. Um, and so I guess, you know, to get right to the root of it, I mean, how would you define democracy um, in its kind of purest form um, if there is such thing? But, you know, what does it mean to you when you say the word? 
for me, I guess the foundation of democracy is that every person is equal. And democracy is a manifestation of that in the sense that every person then has an equal say in how society is governed, uh, how society's monies are spent, um, yeah, how people live and how people are treated. Uh, everybody's equal and everyone has a say. And I guess different you know, societies have uh, interpreted democracy differently over you know, millennia. Um, and most countries now have sort of representational democracy where we elect leaders who are supposed to speak and act on our behalf. I guess, I, I guess I, if I would add that I think the foundation of democracy is also um, institutions uh, that speak for us all, that don't report or belong to any one person. Based on this very basic notion, you've said that it's every person is equal and they have a kind of equal say in how society is governed or run. Do you feel that democracy in that form exists anywhere in the world at present? Uh, I don't think it's ever existed uh, mm -hmm. in that form. I don't think, I, you know, in whichever society um, that has tried to treat all people as equal, I don't think that has been practically the case <laughs> ever. <No. laughs> always been people, to use Orwell's phrase, who have been more equal than others, you know, people who have considered themselves higher and who have oppressed and subjugated others. There are lots of concrete examples, you know, the US Constitution claims all people are equal, uh, but, you know, slavery uh, was uh, an institution in America for a long time. Uh, the Enlightenment in Europe, which again was kind of a major event, uh, at least in the Western world, with the you know, rise of scientific and rational thinking and notions of equality. Uh, even Immanuel Kant, one of the pioneers of, of uh, the Enlightenment at the time that he was writing about equality and liberal values, he also wrote that, you know, the white race is the only race that can attain perfection and people of color essentially are all inferior in various ways. You had a whole hierarchy. Um, so the, the rise of science uh, and that kind of objective thinking also coincided with a racial hierarchy of, you know, of peoples around the world with white people at the top and different colors going down the ladder. Um, places like India, you know, uh, there's people have been treated unequally, you know, with remnants of the caste system. And so, yeah, all over the world, I don't think, uh, I think democracy and equality has been an aspiration, but it hasn't really been practiced. Though I would hope, I feel like as a species, we are hopefully, and in my view, we are moving in the direction of trying to get greater equality and trying to treat more and more people as equal. Well, so Anjan, as you said at the beginning, um, your access, I guess, again, to this um, topic has come via media, via journalism. Um, I mean, you authored a book, so it's come via a sense of storytelling, um, wanting to get, you know, narratives out there um, to the world. What do you feel the role of media is in influencing how people interact with democracy, how they understand it, how they might participate in it? I mean, we get We've had so many discussions, I think, um, especially in some of the elections we've had in recent years, certainly here in the UK, I, I, I'm at definitely also in the US, about the power the media has, I guess, in swaying it. Um, so even if maybe people really had an equal voice, um, 
what are they basing that voice on, right? What information are they using to make their decisions, for example? To me, the media is sort of the most, perhaps the most important piece of a democracy, uh, a free, a free and fair media is, uh, is maybe the, the most difficult, I might say, piece of building a democracy. And I say this as a journalist, of course, but I feel like the other, the other bits, the courts and the, the justice system, you know, the other pillars of democracy has four pillars, sort of. And I feel the first three, the courts and, you know, uh, leaders, elected leaders and uh, leaders and, and, and the executive, the bureaucrats, you know, who en enact laws and uh, operationalize them. I feel like those emerge naturally in almost any society. People want to dominate others. People want to be leaders. People want to hoard power and wealth. And I feel that the fourth pillar, which is the press, is the hardest to build and requires, in some ways, the greatest maturity to allow because a press criticizes everyone, and in particular, those with power and wealth. Mm -hmm. uh, on behalf of the rest of society, as journalists, we're just ordinary people. We trade in perhaps that most powerful of things, which is words and information. It's, I guess, the, the, in any system where power is concentrated, even in democracies, there is the possibility that people will abuse that power and abuse that wealth and hoard it for themselves and you know become corrupt. And to me, a, a press is the is society's defense against abuses of power. And so, you know, yeah, a press speaks for everyone, speaks on behalf of everyone, speaks to protect all the people uh, and holds the powerful accountable. Was that your motivation, Anjan? Do you feel, um, you know, you, you've said that how important it is and but also how dangerous it is, is it is. I mean, do you feel that for yourself, what motivated you into it, I guess? I became a journalist, you know, I went from... America where I was studying, I went to, uh, to the Democratic Republic of Congo. I kind of showed up with no journalistic experience and I became a journalist there. I learned journalism. And I think if you'd asked me back then as a 22 year old who just graduated from college, I think I would have said something like, oh, there's a certain glamour and adventure and free spiritedness to a journalist's life. There's a certain ability to travel, see the world, understand the world would have been uh, motivations like that. But it was really in Rwanda when I was teaching and accompanying the Rwandan journalists who were persecuted by the government that I began to understand, oh, no, no, oppress isn't about informing, simply informing people. It isn't simply, it, it isn't about entertaining people. Um, it isn't about sports, uh, you know, sports journalism. Oppress serves a very fundamental function. And I saw the Rwandan journalists battle for their lives in order to play that role in their societies because they wanted a society in which their children, their families, their friends, and fellow country people could live with a certain degree of freedom. And Rwanda is a dictatorship, and so they lost their lives, and uh, these journalists were crushed. Uh, but I would say, as I've kind of over the years, over the past decade, I've come to understand that the topics I write about and I report on, uh, what motivates me is to find places and situations where a lot of people are being affected uh, by violence, for example, uh, or war or dictatorship, but there aren't enough journalists there, there aren't enough voices there reporting on those situations. So I find a certain meaning for myself 
in reporting on those abuses of power uh, that are underreported. And so, yeah, in, that, in a certain sense, that is at the heart of what journalism should be doing. Journalism in many countries is kind of diversified into all kinds of, you know, reality TV and sports journalism and entertainment and all kinds of storytelling. Uh, but to me, those are luxuries that journalism can offer once it, it is successfully serving its basic function, which is to hold power accountable. Wow, I like that. I like this idea of a basic function and, and the luxuries that follow. I mean, so Anjan, do, do you feel a sense of duty? I mean, do you think, um, whether, well, we as humans, maybe especially if we have greater privileges or education or access or resources, that there is that there is a sense of duty that we should have to actually, um, you know, further truth, um, further justice, um, you know, expose injustice where we can? Yeah, it's, it's not like I, I, I'm seeking to insert myself into these troubled situations. Often I'm going about my work, my life, and I hear about something and I feel that I can't turn away. You know, uh, that, that I, I hear about something that isn't being reported. I felt I, that, that that was the most meaningful thing that I could do. Um, if nobody else is there, a lot of people are being affected, are being harmed, and nobody else is there then my presence there, my work there, is that much more necessary and effective and meaningful. And uh, so, yeah, given a choice between that kind of work and, I don't know, I had a job at Goldman Sachs a long time ago, or, uh, you know, I was offered a job, that is. And, uh, you know, other kinds of work, yeah, for me, the journalism, serving other human beings, um, bearing witness for them and to their experiences, I think, helps me feel that, you know, at the end of my life, I might be satisfied somewhat with what I try to do. Yeah, it's really interesting and how many times you use the word meaning. And one of our very recent guests on, a, on, on an episode about um, we try to define socialism and it, a lifelong activist and campaigner, and she kept saying the same thing. Well, it just gives your life meaning. I mean, yeah, sure. You know, you don't always it doesn't always feel great. You don't always see the victories. You know, sometimes it's really tough, but equally, as you said, I still have to do something with my life. I have to get up. I have to do something. And if I was to have another job or this, then at least this gives my life meaning. And we are finding that with a lot of the people we interview on this podcast, because we choose them, because we feel they have dedicated their lives to make some kind of social change, you realize how much it just feels like it's part of their DNA for them after a while. And they don't even really question it anymore. Um, I want to get back to, so you have such insight into having worked in um, certainly across the African continent. And I know you yourself are, are, you know, your family is Indian and we, you know, we wanted, we wanted that. We wanted an international kind of perspective on this episode as well, having obviously covered a bit more in detail about the UK democ um, democratic system. But, you know, in, in the West, um, there seems to be this maybe, I don't know, a narrative, a fairly common belief, a fairly mainstream belief, perhaps that we just in the West live in decent progressive democracies, you know, whilst the rest of the world or certainly some developing countries or countries in, um, you know, the global South or whatever, don't. Um, I mean, based on what you've seen, do you feel that there is truth to this? I mean, maybe less about whether these other places are corrupt and maybe more about whether the West is not corrupt. I mean, you know, is there is there any truth to this varying degree or do you think that, 
it's more just that some countries cover up their corruption better, that they have better smoke and mirrors? Um, is it that the world needs some countries to remain undemocratic or underdeveloped and other, you know, for others to thrive? Like, what is your feeling about this divide or this perspective that people hold? I think it's it's underappreciated. I think countries are more equally democratic than than we think. And I think, uh, for example, it's underappreciated how power is checked, uh, and you know, uh, powerful people are held accountable in so-called non-democratic countries. There are mechanisms, but they're not appreciated because much of the study of democracy. Uh, and the institutions, you know, the press, the legislative and judiciary and all that is kind of has come from a Western uh, lens. Uh, but I'll give you one example. So what we call journalism, the Western tradition of journalism, we all recognize it, it's newspapers and TV. In, in the Middle East, for example, poetry was often used to speak to the powerful, you know, the, the rulers of, their, of those countries. And uh, you know, recently I came across an example a couple of years ago in Dubai, where you know, a woman's son had been killed in a road accident by someone very powerful, and the powerful people had not faced any justice. So she wrote this long poem in which you know, 90% of the poem was in praise of the country's rulers. And then at the end, she added, you know, and in such a, so such a wonderful country, in such a benevolent country, uh, how, can, how can my son die and no one be brought to justice? And you know, most Western journalists or you know, political theorists would scoff at that. But what happened in response to that letter was you know, that letter caused kind of an uproar or people began to talk. It, it, it was a form of journalism. Uh, that letter began to circulate. People, families began to talk about you know, how this boy had died. And, uh, uh, and the rulers eventually realized that they had to act. And so the, the perpetrators of that road accident were brought to justice uh, to a certain degree. And so that too is a form of journalism, even though it would never be credited as such in, uh, in Western curricula of you know, theories of democracy or journalism. And I think that has contributed to this view that you mentioned that you know, Western societies are more democratic, more advanced, more progressive. Uh, I think there are a number of spheres in which you know, other countries in the so-called East, uh, have been more progressive. I think gender was far more fluid in places like India and Persia uh, you know, several centuries ago. Uh, gender was more fluid. There was more acceptance of you know, non-binary people. And uh, what colonialism did was to kind of place everyone in the same matrix and you know, judge everyone Back then, when the when Western powers came to India and Persia, you know these societies were judged as primitive and savage, for in, in among other things, for the way they treated you know transgender people or non-binary people. It's it's uh, it's stunning. And so now again, you find this a similar discourse. Oh, India and Persia or Iran are not uh, you know progressive as progressive, but actually many of these countries have uh, in their roots and their traditions kind of long histories of. Of tolerance, of equality, I, I would say no single country has a monopoly on democracy and equality. Different countries have kind of been more or less advanced in different realms and spheres, and uh, and I think it's under 
appreciated, you know, uh, big partly because of colonialism and because of our notions of what a modern advanced society should look like. We miss some of these uh, more egalitarian, more tolerant traditions in other, other places. And um, I mean, you lived yourself, Anjan, in the US, and then you went, you know, and reported in Africa, and, and you know, obviously you moved to the US from India. I mean, again, a country like the US might be perceived as as one of one of the beacons of kind of freedom of speech and and democracy and and obviously they just recently had an election and do you have any thoughts on where the US on that maybe global image i mean no, and i think that image is probably shifting anyway but um you know on their democratic system perhaps as a system that i guess we're all forced to to think about and talk about just because of its size and its prominence <laughs> That's definitely true. America's wealth and kind of dominance of global economic landscape means we all have to kind of uh, look to it as a beacon. Uh, I, there are certainly things about America that I really appreciate. I think as a journalist, for example, there's uh, there was this case, Sullivan versus the New York Times, in which the Supreme Court ruled, the Supreme Court of the U.S. ruled that uh, journalists or anyone could criticize powerful people without fear of retribution. Like if, if, if I'm honestly, if I as a journalist honestly make a criticism of someone powerful and wealthy, um, that powerful, and even if I'm wrong, that powerful person would have to prove that I willfully uh, was negligent and I willfully sought to tarnish their reputation, which is a very high bar legally uh, to prove. And so I can criticize um, I can criticize as a journalist in America the powerful with far greater ease. And I think, you know, you see this in the rise of movements like Me Too, uh, where, which have risen first in America because the legal system allows for this. You don't have to worry that someone like Harvey Weinstein is going like, to come after you with his immense resources if you don't succeed uh, in your court case. Uh, when I published my book on Rwanda, uh, there was no problem to publish in America. But in the UK, for example, journalists don't have that similar protection. If I criticize someone wealthy or powerful, they have the right to then come after me if I'm wrong, just to, uh, on the grounds that I have defamed them, I've hurt their reputation, and I will have to pay damages. And so when my Rwanda book in the UK had to pass through lawyers and uh, you know, a legal kind of uh, uh, vetting to make sure that it didn't expose my publisher uh, to being sued. And I think that's a pity. And so there are certainly things about America and free speech that, that I appreciate, but I think it's, you know, we've seen over the past couple of years more than ever, uh, the systemic racism and institutional racism that is embedded in all across America and uh, that America has been blind to even with its uh, supremely independent and free press. Uh, sometimes when I think about Native American, you know, reservations in America, you rarely see any reporting about them in the mainstream press, even mm. in the most eminent uh, newspapers and journals. Uh, to me, it, it, the Native American population feels forgotten in the way that you know Africa feels forgotten in in the global community, uh, or African wars or African uh, injustice. And so there's just a it seems almost a desire to just turn away from it and not report on it which for me is unbelievable because the you know, massacre and genocide of Native Americans was fundamental to the founding 
of America. And so injustice is in its very roots in the country's very founding. And perhaps it's for that reason that you know, the press and uh, society as a whole finds it so hard to look in an unbiased, in an objective way at those communities and report on them, speak about their experience. I think we're coming to see more and more sides of America that hadn't had been had had, got, had gone unspoken, and uh, and I think even as painful as it is for Americans in America, I think uh, this is for, to the be benefit of society at large to confront their past and hopefully build a more egalitarian future. Yeah. And I think how I read Brexit and you know the support for Trump is that people who are attached to those conservative traditional values are so attached to them that they're willing to give up democracy in order to retain that racial traditional character of the country. They're willing to damage and give up many benefits that democ democracy has provided them. Uh, in some cases, they're even willing, I think, to hurt their economies and, you know, as a society, be poorer because they're so attached to how they believe their society should look. Um, and so, yeah, in that, in that context, I find democracy has been sort of downgraded <laughs> from one of the mm. fundamental values that kind of drives our societies to kind of just another thing that can be traded away. It's no longer, uh, and with democracy comes many of our universal, you know, freedoms and values, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of, uh, you know, freedom to live, all these sort of fundamental freedoms that, you know, when in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, uh, all these countries agreed to were so fundamental you could not buy or sell them, you could not trade them away. And now suddenly with Brexit and with support for Trump, you're suddenly finding that a huge section of the populations of you know, the UK or uh, America or the US are willing actually to trade away those notions. They, they, they don't hold them so dear. And to them, they want to continue to live out a nation an idea of a nation that was handed down to them by their ancestors. You know, this piece of land is ours. We come from here. We look like this. This is who our people are. And this is what the other looks like. And uh, yeah, that, that it's, it's, it, to, to change those notions seems such a huge threat to them that uh, even democracy is something so important and qualities uh, they're willing to give, give those up. Yeah, our, our expectations have really shifted. And what I think people take as a baseline, it seems to be really, um, has, has, has dropped quite low. And I guess in that case, a lot of things go <laughs> um, mm. once you don't have that bar anymore. Um, Anjan, so I guess for people who um, do want to, um, you know, fight for those core values for people that do see them eroding, that maybe, you know, that see them compromised and so on, um, who might want to fight for them and they might not be able to do it, um, you know, to the full extent that you have and, and you know, go in and, and live in the sort of dangerous front lines, but they people want to do something. Um, what kind of starting point do you think there is? What kind of actions can pe could people take that might have the biggest impact and, I guess, do those actions, I imagine, maybe vary a bit depending on also what country or what continent or whatever people might live in, um, in day-to-day mm. -day things that people might do um, if they listen to this and say, okay, I, I, I need to fight a bit harder. <laughs> I, I really honestly believe that all of us have opportunities to 
fight for these universal values, to fight for each other um, in our homes, in our communities, you know, in our countries, uh, can be, you know, even, you know, as small as in our families. And I think when you fight for freedom for someone else, uh, uh, and equality for someone else, it's really magical thing because by fighting for that one person, you're, you're granting it or fighting for so many. And I think that's a, that's, that's a battle that is so meaningful and so uh, beautiful in many ways. And so while it's hard to say which specific one, I, I would encourage people as much as they can to kind of look for those opportunities uh, in their classrooms, in their families, workplaces. Um, and often, yeah, the scariest choices, uh, you know, the scariest decisions that we make sometimes lead to uh, us finding new callings in life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I've seen, you know, recently people who've spoken out at, you know, at Google or other big companies, they've come out and become activists for workplace rights and, and for, you know, for how capitalism treats workers. I think if you ask them, I would suspect they would never have, they would never have believed that they would, their life would take such a turn. Uh, but it all began with that one decision to speak out about some injustice that they saw in their workplace, which was extremely scary at the time. And they discovered that, you know, they weren't alone, that uh, many, many people were facing similar dilemmas, but were too afraid to speak up and, and just accepted the injustice. Uh, and by speaking up, they had given voice to so many. And it just, you know, one thing leads to the next and suddenly, you know, they're living very meaningful lives, making change that, uh, that needed to happen, but, you know, the power structures didn't allow for. Uh, I think those are the most beautiful kind of unfoldings uh, that, you know, by which we can bear witness to ourselves and discover ourselves. Yeah, and and I really feel you. We we and we have an episode on on workers' rights actually, and and in that, you know, our guests very much speak about this idea that, okay, maybe on your own you feel quite powerless, but once you realize how many people are in your position, and that by grouping together you actually probably have more power than the powers that oppress you. But that's um, something that people, as you say, it's quite a it's a scary first step to take once you take it everything shifts, <laughs> I think, mm -hmm. um, for, for people. Um, Anton, do you have any, um, what do you think are good media outlets? What outlets do you trust? Do you have any good book recommendations? Would you recommend any particular, yeah, platforms, um, magazines or sources that, that you feel are, are the journalism you spoke of, that very, very, yeah, respectable and brave journalism you spoke of, where do you feel that it exists? <laughs> That's a good question. I think <laughs> it's like a hodgepodge. I think you have great journalists who are kind of scattered across all the media outlets. And we're living in kind of unprecedented times where I can't point to a single media outlet who's, who's reporting across the board mm. seems, you know, uh, something that I can, that I can trust even. International news is still so characterized by inequalities, by notions that some lives, you know, Western lives are worth more and more valuable than the lives of people in other places. 
the structure of international news still follows kind of a colonial model where you have these kind of uh, heroic foreign correspondents who are sent out from global capitals like London and New York. They're sent out to the peripheries of the world. Um, they, use the, they, they use the reporting of local journalists uh, for their own international reporting, but they go on, the international journalists go on to win the grand international prizes and the Pulitzers and everything. And the local journalists are often left kind of, who've done most of the work and a lot of the groundwork are left with little credit. Um, I think so many of, there's so much, so many problems with international news. And I think Britain right now with, you know, I, I saw there was a report recently and with, uh, with Meghan Markle and the royal scandal or whatever, her interview with Oprah Winfrey. And, you know, there's, there's Britain is, asking, the UK is asking whether the UK's press is racist or not. And apparently the UK's press is for the first time confronting this question uh, because they seem to think that they're not. Um, I think, yeah, it's just, it's just uh, the inequalities are so deep. Uh, in some ways that's tragic, but in other ways it's an opportunity because I feel that I, it leaves space for me to do work uh, and you know, create meaning and live a meaningful life because I feel like I'm filling in some way uh, to the extent that I can, uh, some of those holes that, that are left in the global media, uh, reporting on injustices that you know, otherwise are deemed unimportant or are not important enough to make the front page or even uh, to report on consistently. I mean, Anjan, that leads me quite nicely on to, we ask all our guests this um, at the end of the episodes. Um, when, I mean, if at all, but when do you feel that your work will no longer be needed? <laughs> uh, I think, I suspect, you know, this goes back to, you know, your question early on, you know, as democracy, does democracy exist anywhere? Uh, has it ever existed? I think there will always be work, which is a double-edged sword. It's a good and bad. It's sort of, you know, uh, I think the world will unfortunately always have equality, inequalities. Uh, there will always be injustices to report on. Uh, it's human nature. And, uh, and I think even if certain problems that I'm working on now were they to be solved, I, th I, I would think that there are other things to work on. And uh, I don't know, that's almost spiritual and religious uh, in some ways, uh, the question that you ask for me. I think, you know, when I've asked these questions of myself, I find sometimes the religious scriptures have provided the, the, the most meaningful answers. Uh, you know, in our lives, there's, there's light and there's dark and the two, you have to accept both. Uh, as much as we don't like the darkness, uh, it's kind of there with us. Mm. And we always have to ask ourselves if we want to do something about it. So, Fazeo, what did you what did you think of that? Yeah, um, it was really interesting, actually, because one of the things I've been grappling with a lot recently, um, just personally, is that if there were another election today, what would happen? Because I think there's been a lot of conversations over the last year and a half, year since we've had an election in 2019, and a lot of dissatisfaction's been expressed with like the current government, the way things have been dealt with, the way things are going. But then I thought, if we had an election today, would anything happen differently? And I reckon the same government would get in, the same set of people would get in if we had an election today. And I've been struggling with that notion a little bit. But I think what was really interesting about what our guests sort of reminded me of today was that 
actually elections and these things that happen every four or five years aren't the most important part of democracy. The important part of democracy is what happens in between those elections and sort of we as people need to reclaim that power in between elections in the things that we do. Um, so I really like that was a really interesting thing for me to grapple with because I've really been struggling with the notion of how um, sporadic and how uh, stretched out I guess it seems that we have a chance to hold people to account but I was reminded today of actually no you can hold people to, to account constantly um, and you can engage constantly and affect things constantly. I think for me you know when you hear them both um, you know Oliver in such practical terms kind of talk about democracy what it is how it does run how it should run you know, you hear Anjan talk sort of so from such a pure place about what it really, really means. Right. And how it really would be this idea of like equal say and equal input from people. What I think really hits you and I, I kind of knew this anyway, but what really hits you is how far from that we are, like just how far from maybe the purest, most basic form of democracy really and truly our democratic systems are. And, you know, Oliver mentions like something like pop you know poverty um really obvious and maybe in some ways but actually that already being a barrier to democracy you know Anjan talks about all the ways in which people are blocked from participating in democracies and it's it's like we, we supposedly have them mm. but yeah I mean I think one of the I think I think on a fundamental level and one of the things that I brought up with Oliver was like education why are we not educated about politics like just to a basic level you know if it's something that affects us all so much and we're all supposed to engage in and be a part of why do we not just have a basic knowledge of what it is and how we can participate in it and how we can engage in it um I remember I can't find a statistic now but I remember um around the time of the referendum there was this really shocking statistic that was I think it was something like 75 percent of people under 25 didn't actually even know what a referendum is or like didn't even understand what it is and stuff like that for me is really like fundamentally like just wrong <laughs> I'm trying to think of a more sophisticated way of saying it but it's just wrong and I think what was important in that is that Oliver, as Oliver said is that these things are intentional they're not accidental they're not you know they're not random intentionally people are being left out of a of understanding these things because it means that ultimately there's less likelihood that people the people in power will be held to account if people don't understand how things are meant to work if they don't understand how they can hold people to account if they don't understand what's supposed to be happening then how are they going to ever keep people in check and like you say who ends up being left out tend to be people that are poorer people that might be outside of um the majority culture etc etc um because essentially elite people people that are being groomed to be the leaders they are learning about these things it's not across the board that people aren't learning about these things it tends to be in state schools that we don't have this education for example yeah and you know I mean you know they are the people that I guess you could say have the most to want to change about society as well right so I know exactly. that in the last election there was um these really amazing grassroots efforts to for example give homeless people an address where they could therefore then register to vote because you need an address so this is another way in which you know the barriers um to voting so a homeless person arguably has a hell of a lot they might want to change about society do you know what I mean like a, a way more that they still stand to gain than some of us who might go do I really need to vote I don't know I'm not far 
caste, whatever, you know, and they can't vote. So your, your society is already doing you wrong, but you don't have the access to the tools to try and change it, for example. So, you know, that, again, is, is like we supposedly have a democratic society, but actually are all the vehicles in place to make sure that it works optimally. Mm. And, you know, you were saying to me earlier, and you were saying to Oliver, like, how are we not just automatically registered to vote? I mean, if they hold yeah. so much surveillance on us, like if we if we have to untick boxes on every marketing questionnaire ever that says, no, 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 don't contact me and don't collect my data, like we actively yeah. have to tell people, don't collect my data, then with all the data you haven't asked, why are we not just automatically yeah. able to vote? Why does that require I mean, another step? They managed to find us when we turn um, 16 or 18 and we get our, we're ready to work. They managed to find us and send us all our, our um, NI numbers and our NI cards. So in the same way, why can't you automatically, for people that, obviously there's nuance, there might be people that have moved here, et cetera, et cetera. But for people that were born in the UK, I don't understand why they're registered we know how old they are once they turn 18 automatically you can turn up to a polling station and vote i don't see why it should be an opt-in i think um yes i guess people should have the right not to vote i don't know if i believe there should be fines or anything if you choose not Mm -hmm. to vote but it should be an automatic right that is there and you don't have to opt into i don't know maybe that's a radical view but i don't i don't feel it is i feel like it's i feel that that's just common sense in my in my eyes, if we truly are saying that we want to be in a democracy. I feel, you know, again, like like both of them, when we said to them, do you think democracy exists anywhere in that pure form, in the form you've just described, in the form that you like it, in the form that it means something to you? And they both kind of went, nah, I, I don't yeah. I don't think it does, you know. Uh, so yeah. that that's quite scary, I feel. And therefore, and I feel for me, that's the leap between everyone talks about democracy obviously very favorably and it's you know it's almost considered a pretty fascist view these days to go no i don't really like democracy that just seems to be the one thing that everybody sort of waxes lyrical about regardless of their political views but i think to then i think for a lot of people they don't realize that this thing they're really praising is not the thing that's happening and not the thing that we have mm. and i really yeah. you know something about like like anjan's bravery or courage or this feeling almost of like duty to go out and reveal that wherever you can you know like sort of what is as you Mm. said what is our role in the four-year cycles assuming we even have elections you know like Mm. what do you do day to day to hold the lack of democracy um to account and obviously I mean you I mean for say your industry is media or you know has always been media yeah yeah um exactly and I'm listening to Anjan it was just it was really inspiring because it is essentially everything I'm trying to do with my work as well on a different scale and in a different context, but sort of empowering people to understand media, to be critical of media, to create their own media so that we kind of minimise the dominance of certain narratives and the power of certain narratives. And I think Oliver also referenced it. A lot of these media giants that we have, especially here in the UK, They're owned by billionaires, they're owned by very rich people and media gives them immense power because essentially they're controlling the narrative of how we understand the world. They're controlling how we critique people. They're controlling what what the dominant narratives are. So media holds such an important part. And I think what's quite interesting actually is not only have we identified that maybe we don't have 
democracy in its true essence here. But funnily enough, we're very critical of other places and we're very ready to call out other places on not having democracy when we ourselves don't even have it ourselves. So it's very interesting that we're able to be critical of elsewhere whilst maybe not even realizing the hypocrisy in that in the fact that we're very you know we're far from what we're claiming to be as well with the point um about media and therefore that controlling the again the flow of information and knowledge i think that again raises this other question which is even if let's say we had a brilliant democratic system where everybody was driven to the voting booths and you know was automatically kind of registered to vote and had all you know the ways of voting do we have enough information and knowledge available to yeah. us to make the right voting choice? And we we referenced earlier in the learn section about liquid democracy, which I hadn't heard of. But this idea that, you know, you might actually say to somebody else, like you could cast a vote for me on this subject, which initially makes us go, oh, that feels really uncomfortable. It's my vote. It's one vote per person, et cetera, et cetera. But have we again, like, I feel like in recent years, especially, there's been such a trend towards going, no, 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 you know, obviously this society has become so elitist, we know that, our politicians are considered so far from us, so far removed from us, that there's a backlash to that, and people want this sense of autonomy back, and they want this sense of people power back, but what it's actually done is it's kind of created that slogan of, we're done with experts, right? But if an, if things weren't elite, then expertise is good. Like, you know, we need expertise. Like, I wouldn't dig up my own floor and try and do my own plumbing. In fact, I kind of had to do that last week and it was a bit of a disaster. So, like, I, I had to in the end call a plumber and then a drainage company and then there was a drip through our floor and whatever. So, like, I don't consider that an offence to my autonomy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That someone has to come I and think do it's plumbing. more that the access to being an expert maybe that needs tackling so that there's more um, there's more equity in being able to access education so that anyone in essence could become an expert. But I don't think, yeah, being an expert in and of itself is a problem and we need experts. But saying that, I'm not actually sure how I feel about liquid <laughs> democracy. <laughs> you don't want to give over your vote. It. <laughs> <laughs> I get it in essence. And I think, yes, it makes sense that people that have knowledge on something should vote on something. But I guess where I might come from it is that okay, Mona has more um, expertise than me on uh, road works and parking. (laughs) Is that what you're going to grant me? Is that what I was like, she, I know everything. What can Mona help me with? (laughs) We can have all of the things Mona could do road works. All right, fine. I think I'm going to give up for Zoe. Thanks so much for the day job. Okay. Mona has more expertise in A than me, X than me. Um... (laughs) What I would prefer is that Mona sort of gives me a little tutorial in X so that I can vote on X mm-hmm. myself because because um, you I don't trust me power... to cast the right. No, it's for not you. even that. It's <laughs> not that I don't trust you, but I think in the long term, is does that mean we're just encouraging people to mm-hmm. disengage mm-hmm. and shift responsibility? Mm-hmm. Um, because yes, you can't be an expert in everything, but yes, you can learn about X Y Z at the point that X Y Z is important to know about. Yeah. Um, and I would rather that. As a society, we have many people that have a little bit of knowledge of knowledge about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Then, oh, I don't know about this. Let me find someone else that can. I don't know something about empowering people through yeah. their education. Mm-hmm. I prefer, um, but it does make me think of things like Brexit, where the whole campaigns around these things. The whole there's a, been a lot of discussion about how much of the decision made was based on misinformation or mm-hmm. the fact that people simply just didn't know. 
I mean, this, but this is interesting. So this goes back to kind of what Oliver was saying about time. And so, again, obviously, in an yes. ideal world where we were having ideal yes. democracy, you wouldn't have people too poor or too exhausted or whatever to not have the time, to have the knowledge yeah. to cast a vote, right? But he literally said, you know, time. So poverty, you don't have the time, and that already yeah. limits your access to democracy, and that definitely limits your access, I'm sure, to getting a tutorial on everything that you yeah, need to vote on, right? So... Yeah. This is, again, all the barriers, like there are practical barriers, you know, of, of literally how do I register? I don't have a car, it's raining, where is the voting booth, whatever, whatever. I'm not that good with the internet, so on. And then there is this knowledge barrier. Like once yeah. I get to the voting booth, do, you, do I know what the best vote is to cast? And I think, as you yeah. just said, with Brexit, we found that if all that's put on the ballot is yes or no, leave or remain and you're exactly. like but what does all of that mean like exactly. what is every policy that sits in the eu if i remain and what is every policy change i might have to deal with if we leave right yeah. and i don't think it's exactly. insulting to say people maybe like i I'll, I'll start with myself i wouldn't have known if someone said to me what are your reasons for leaving or remaining they would have been a little bit more, I think, emotional than that. In my case, it might have just been, well, I'm a Danish citizen, so I'd quite like it if we stay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I think it's not offensive to go, did people really know every single bit of that? Even our God, politicians don't know. They're trying to still work it out three years later, four years later. Exactly. And even as simply as the fact that when you turn up to the polling booth, you don't see David Cameron or... Um, or uh, or Theresa May or um, Jeremy Corbyn, you see your local representative. Mm -hmm. Even stuff like that can like blow people off and like they don't understand what's going on. And I think for me, this might cycle back. I don't know, I'm thinking on my feet, but this might cycle back to the whole education element. So time, yes, once we're adults, time becomes a lot mm -hmm. more um, personal depending on your circumstance. Um, and time is often taken up by the need to work, to get capital, to survive, right? But when we're kids, I think that's when you have the most time. You know, mm. you're in school. We have those eight hours in the school day. Make sure that politics is a part of that time. Like, there's no reason why in secondary school, politics shouldn't be a mandatory subject the same way maths is. I would argue it's as important, if not more important, than maths. So whilst we have time as children, yes, you can't go into the crux of every single issue but we can teach the basics of this is how voting works this is what you'll see on a ballot sheet this is how often voting happens this is um these are the main parties we have in the uk this is the system we have in the uk all of the things that i learned as someone that chose to study politics at a level i feel should be accessible across the board to everyone as part of your secondary education um and then yes specific subjects maybe you'll have to read up on and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But I think even just having that baseline foundation will sort of um, empower people to want to know more, um, to already have something to base things on and to recognise their civic duty and their civic right a bit more. So, yeah, I, I, I really struggle to understand why we don't have political education in schools. Um, and I feel like they both in different ways really spoke about this idea of maybe civic engagement and civic duty. And mm. as you said, you know, more than just the going and casting of that vote every four years, you know, Anjan very much spoke about how it really gives his life meaning, you know, going and exposing these um, maybe falsehoods or cover-ups or, you know, corruptions, you know, for stronger words, you know, was, was giving his life meaning. He felt like, if I can if I, if I can do that, you know, and obviously maybe not everybody needs to do that to that level, but in what way can you do that? Is that kind of whistleblowing in your workplace? Is that, 
you know, as you, you know, accessing a different source of media and getting different narratives out there? Is it fact checking things? You know, Oliver spoke a lot about getting involved at very grassroots level in whatever you can get involved in so that you start to understand your civ- the immediate civic society around you better so that it gives you access to people, to issues, to causes. Because I sometimes think, you know, if you just live in your own bubble for four years and then you go to cast that vote, what, what have you seen exactly. in those four yeah. years that informed what it is that you then think should change, for example, when you finally go to vote, right? Exactly. So getting in as much as possible out of your own head and your own immediate environment and your own immediate circle so you have some thoughts and some challenges posed to you along the way that might help you to be like, what, exactly. what, what do I want to change? In that sense, you wouldn't vote? have to necessarily become an expert on things because you'll get it through lived experience. Like you say, not every issue will personally affect you. So maybe if you don't have a car, you won't be personally affected by the road laws. But if you do go and volunteer or if you do engage in your community and you meet other people that have cars and actually through conversation, you'll understand the troubles that people that have cars have and you, then you might be more informed. So yes, like you say... Or you can ask me because I'm the roadworks expert now. <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer, we both have a car. So Mona's no more. <laughs> but um, um, we, yeah, exactly. We Just through conversation, maybe you do speak to a homeless person. Maybe you speak to a refugee. Maybe you speak, etc., etc. Through these conversations, you don't become an expert necessarily, but you have the compassion and you have some knowledge and you have some foreground to base your opinions on. And those can be opinions outside of your own lived experience. So yeah, definitely. Um, I think that's a really important part of engaging between elections. And like Oliver said, it's a part of taking back that power, mm-hmm. even though it might not feel like you're doing anything big. Um, it is a way of taking back that power. So I think as always, people, I think we're sort of talking here about, again, a sense of a constant, a, can, a case of a sense of a way of life, um, a sense of kind of understanding the society around you and kind of, you know, it, like absorbing yourself in it and as much as possible in a way that's accessible to you, um, locally to you, through maybe people you know, through causes that are nearby, recognising those small wins. I think Oliver also, again, referenced that, you know, I think most of our guests talk a bit about that. Don't get overwhelmed by the enormity of it. Then might be something very local to you that you can get involved with and see a bit of a small win or see how democracy so to speak might play out in a really really like localized way to you you know where actually your local play group manages to push through to get their you know venue back at the local community center or something and you might see a small win and that might be sort of mobilizing and then I think you know Anjan really echoed I feel our guest um, Azar's point earlier, you know, this year about this sense of meaning of life, like it doesn't have to be almost seen as a chore or like a, you know, really energy and time consuming thing to get involved in these issues. It could actually be the essence of life. It could be the thing that gives you energy rather than takes your energy. Like if you fight for something, if you get passionate about thinking that things could be better, that actually doesn't have to be consuming. It, It could be energizing. Yeah, and I think they both spoke about, they reiterated the fact, um, again, that as as I said, which is that you don't necessarily have to reach the end point in your lifetime. The journey is as valid also. Um, having contributed to it is as valid um, as the end point because some of these concepts are really big and it's easy to feel like, what's the point on starting? We're not going to get there, but mm-hmm. the journey is as important, like you say. 
Um, so some practical things. Let's <laughs> let's try and leave you with some practical things. I think one of the biggest things is registering to vote. If you are in the UK, um, please do register to vote. We've got some elections coming up in May. Um, and registering to vote is quite simple. It's supposed to take only five minutes. Go to gov.uk forward slash register dash to dash vote. Um, and you should be able to register to vote there. Uh, we'll also put some links to this in the episode notes and on our website. So if you want to know about more about eligibility to vote, we'll put it all there so you can have a look there. But it's meant to be a really simple process. If you've already registered in the past, you don't have to re-register, so don't worry. This is just for people that are newly needing to register. Or I guess if you've moved address and you need to be voting in a new place... Yes. then you need to update yes. your, your address, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just, you know, most areas, the actual voting station is, there'll be so many of them, so it's unlikely to ever be very, very far from you, but it's just about finding out. And it, they're usually in a community centre or a local primary school or a church or yeah. something, and you just exactly. go in and you cast it. It's very unintimidating. You just queue up, you know, you kind of put a pencil cross and on a piece of paper. It's almost a bit too unintimidating. You're like, yes. this doesn't feel very <laughs> official. Are you sure I'm voting for our next government or whatever? But that's that's how that's usually how it is. Um, and then we've spoken a lot about fact checking. So when you are receiving information that you're voting based on, whether that's having conversations with people about it, there are quite a few fact-checking websites that we're going to post up as well in the notes so that you can try as much as possible to see if you can really just check all the information you're hearing, have dialogue with people that know more about it than you. We don't have liquid democracy in this country, so you can't hand your vote over. Um, but perhaps if you if you genuinely don't know about a subject and that might have made you want to not vote at all, it might still be worth at least gathering some information on it leading up to the vote and at least casting a vote on it if 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 you can. Um and we're gonna post some article we're gonna post some book recommendations and some articles as well on, you know, just if you want to understand more about democracy, um maybe the pros and the cons and the ways that it works and doesn't work. Yeah, like we've said, um, if you don't find what we're talking about in the episode notes, they'll always be on the website, which is untelevised.co.uk. Um, you can also find us on social media at untelevised underscore TV. That's our Instagram and our Twitter. So please, any feedback or thoughts you have, you can find us there. You can comment on our posts. You can DM us um, and we'll gladly get back to you um also follow subscribe rate or review us wherever you listen to us um we're still fairly new around here and we love to hear your feedback and see that we're um reaching people it's always nice to know that you're actually talking to people um and yeah if you have any ideas feel free, feel free to also shoot us an email at talk to untelevised at gmail.com and the two is the digit two and as we did with socialism, um, we will follow up this episode with some practical um, examples of how democracy might actually filter down. So, you know, it's not just our political system. It might also be the system by which you govern a workplace, a mutual housing space, etc., etc. So watch out for those case studies coming your way. Take yeah. care, everyone. Thanks, guys. <laughs> See you soon. Bye. Want me a dreamer. Idealistic believer with my head in a cloud. I don't wanna come down from my feet. Our planet on, start the ground.